Well, welcome to the third instalment of Lit Bits. Uh, my name's Adam Smythe and I'm joined by my pod pal, James Kidd. Pod pal, is that a word? I think so. It is now. It is now. It's yeah. our first neologism. Um, now, there's no secret that James and I have a particular ritual before recording the pod, which is to go out and gorge on oysters and port at a hostelry around the corner. And as we were working our way through a pile of natives and rocks the other week, we thought maybe food and literature would be a good topic to discuss, and that's what we're going to do today. And so we're delighted to welcome Polly Russell, who's going to help us navigate the world of food and literature, which is a big topic. So where do we begin? Well, as I was, I was coming here, I passed Waterstones, and in their window they had a big display of their two books of the moment, the first being Jonathan Franzen's uh, Freedom, Franzen, after Geoffrey Archer, perhaps the most critically acclaimed novelist of, of our moment. And the other book was uh, <laughs> Nigel Slater's latest cookbook on fruit, I think, fruit trees, fruit something like fruit. And it seemed to me very remarkable that these were their two big um, big books. Said something about the rise of the cookbook, perhaps, and also maybe the fall of the novel and maybe the way the cookbook has fallen into the space left by the novel. So, James, you're an owner of any cookbooks? There are some, but mainly donated at, uh, by a desperate mother at, at Christmas. And do you read them to cook? At some distance. <laughs> I must admit, I don't open them very, very often. Yeah, well, it does seem they have a strange status in contemporary culture, don't they? I think, like whether to follow the instructions, whether to read for some other purpose. And if we don't read to cook, then why are we, why are we reading Nigel Slater? It seems strange. I read to cook, and I read to, um, I read to imagine what I'm going to be doing in the future. So I'm sort of fantasizing about the life that I want to be having right. with my friends or right. with my family. Right. But And it is a slightly furtive activity because it's <laughs> often I'm reading in bed at night. Right, yes. Do Cookery we read these books. Yeah, th- th- particular times yeah. of the day, at night? Yeah. Right. And there'll be a big pile by the bed. Right. And how does one read? Do, do you read, do you sort of allocate one recipe per night, a sort of naughty flan or a um, fricassee, and then, oh, then you read something else? Or do you read 30 pages at a time? Well, I always think when I'm reading a book, 30 pages is a good chunk, like I've read well if I've read 30 pages. But with the cookbook, is it? Is it uh, no, I'm sort of flicking through and then a right. recipe takes my fancy and I'll right. read that one. Right. It, it, sort of read the method and look at the ingredients and then I'll flick through and it, 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 so I'm jumping through a book. Right. So it's, and, and that's interesting, the relationship between consuming the, the ingredients and then the method. You start with a prose method and then look at the ingredients or do you dutifully go through the... No, it's not dutiful at all. No, it wouldn't. I'd just glance at the ingredients and then I'd read the method uh, very quickly right. and then sort of learn it in my head and, yeah. and wonder if I could do it. Strange things about cook- cookery books at the moment is that, well, A, they're everywhere, and B, there is this kind of rhetoric of easiness, which lots of them seem to mm. pervade, that it just takes 20 minutes. I mean, obviously, Jamie Oliver's the, the supreme example, but all of them seem to be um, easy recipes. Those are the ones that I tend to get. My mother particularly. The, the most depressing one was Delia's One is Fun when <laughs> I was, I think I just split up with a girlfriend. It's an ambiguous title, isn't it? Different kind of furtive uh, activity. But I was interested what you were saying about the idea of, of imagining a, a whole life because that was something that Jamie Oliver did seem to yeah. bring in was that extraordinary television programme where Jamie and his mates would come around and they'd all muck in together. and Fill the plumber. Fill the plumber and, and they all had mopeds. That's right. And that's the reason I could never cook because I, didn't, I still don't own a moped and that seems to be important. <laughs> Um, but was it, is that very much a part of it, the, the, the notion of food as so, social and... I think it's about food as a kind of... It's, well, it's aspirational, isn't it? So mm. it's thinking about who you would want to be. Mm. And you might want to be matey Jamie in some way. You might want to be Nigella, you know, across genders. I think it works across genders. Mm. You might want to be... Um, 
fantastic and amazingly sort of Gordon Ramsay-ish in terms of mm-hmm. all-powerful in the kitchen. You know, so I think it allows you to inhabit different um, identities, I suppose, yeah. th- vicariously through mm-hmm. through their cooking. So there's this rhetoric of easiness, but they're often very... No, I think that's quite a, that is quite a contemporary thing. I don't think the re- I think the rhetoric of easiness has come about as a result of um, the notion of convenience and time and it having to fit in and it being a leisure activity. And I think that um, it is explicitly not about easiness um, until very recently. So, for instance, at the beginning of Julia Child's Mastering the Art of French Cookery in 1961, she explicitly says, you know. Um, Good food is, uh, I think, something like simple, uh, simple, honest and true. But this doesn't mean it's simple to make. Um, this is it requires labor it requires forethought you have to be clever about your shopping you have to be strategic so it's quite different sort of idea mm-hmm. about what cookery is about mm-hmm. that it, it, there's a kind of acknowledgement of the labor of it the extraordinary thing about the julie and julia blog and yeah. film seem to be the notion that no one actually ever cooked julia child's recipes or they weren't very easy and it was a real achievement that this woman went and, and cooked yeah. them so have we been reading but not Cooking. It's interesting what Adam was saying that mm. if you read your thirty pages of a book, you don't immediately. If you're reading War and Peace, you don't immediately leap up at the end of it or the next day and fight for the Russian army. But well, if you I read do. a cook, uh, but at the end of a, a cookbook, you are expected to actually do something. But cookbooks have always, as you were saying, cookbooks have always been more about more than just cooking. Haven't they? They've been part of a whole kind of social scene, a whole image of. Of, of, of where you want to be. And I'm, I mean, the cookbooks I'm familiar with, bizarrely, are from the sort of 16th and 17th century when they seem to emerge as a printed form for the first time. And recipes, food recipes, things were always, bun- they were one aspect of a larger kind of social um, education. So they went, they're often bundled actually with kind of medical recipes. Yeah. So you could learn to kind of cure your aching leg while making a, a, a pippin pie at the same time. But they went with medical recipes, but also with an idea of social grace and with poems that you could recite with kind of model letters with how to woo your future partner. That's really interesting. When you think about the books like Mrs Beaton's Household Cookery, mm. the old um, Good Housekeeping um, mm. books, right up until the 70s, they were giving very detailed instructions mm. on how you run your home. Mm. So it's not just how to cook and what what recipes you'd be doing how to cook. It's also how you look after your servants, if you have them, what sort of equipment you should have in your home, mm-hmm. uh, how to hold a perfect party, dinner party. Mm-hmm. Have we got any excerpts? This is uh, Mrs Beaton's co- uh, Cookery and Household Management, the 1971 edition, which I think is very late, which is why I picked it, mm-hmm. because it's 71. You're thinking of kind of sexual, cultural revolution. And yet you have this book coming out um, where the first uh, 200 pages are about homemaking, equipping and servicing a home, the housewife and her home, domestic helpers and their duties, the perfect hostess, etiquette, the art of modern flower arrangement, laundry work, keeping a pet, furnishing with antiques, the general handyman in the home, control of rodent and insect pests in the home, and legal memoranda. And that's before you get to the other 400 pages of recipes so that's quite amazing that's that's fascinating because that really is amazingly like 1630s 1640s um cookery books it's that whole how to keep your household how to keep the staff how to keep the rats out but presumably Um, i'm asking you this question presumably that 1640s text is written primarily for men because of literacy no no, it's it's directed at women but elite women um, and literacy so, is kind of on the rise at this moment, right. but it's certainly true that the most 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 women couldn't 
um, couldn't read it, but it's generally targeted at um, elite women, or at least that's that's the rhetoric of Is the it? title page. But would they be doing the cooking? Well, um, I think it's just, well, that's an interesting question. I think in some instances, maybe because household management was something that you did, even if you're an elite woman, but it might also be about how to police your servants. And um, the thing, the other interesting thing about recipes in the 17th century is that they're always being circulated. I mean, recipe comes from receipt, doesn't it? So it's, it's a thing that's handed out or handed around from person to person. So you buy a recipe book and it is expected, I think, in the 17th century that you'll then through handwritten copies, distributed it to your community or your household or to your, or your servants. Also then presumably uh, orally as well. Yeah. So this is presumably the connection between the literary form and oral form that for people who can't read that then you're also telling them the recipes, which is of course how recipes are mostly passed down or often passed down through watching or through talking. I think that's right. And that also explains how they kind of accumulate layers mm. and nuances and sophistications or regress in certain ways when they hit a bad household. And you can track... If you wanted to, in the 17th century, the circulation of particular recipes as they move through particular households and chains. I was wondering about the relationship between uh, the, the cookery book and biography or autobiography and the idea that you, particularly when you're writing your own recipe, you're writing about your own, the, every, the everyday, your own life, your lived experience. Yeah. And that kind of idea that people, you know, women have always kind of kept uh, cut out recipes and those recipes stuck in and with their notes on and that there seems to be something particularly uh, revealing, in a sense, about a recipe. Often recipes get pinned to particular individuals. So you get recipes like the Countess of Devonshire's way to butter turnips, which circulate <laughs> a particular popularity. Um, but it's also... <laughs> But it's also true that a lot of work recently in, in, in Renaissance studies, 16th, 17th century studies, literary studies, has been looking at recipe books as a form of a kind of textual agency that women enjoyed that has been overlooked and hasn't been taken seriously and be also as a form of self-writing, as a form of life writing that kind of uses codes and um, a particular discourse of, of food and, and food making but but does reveal um, what people are up to. And also these recipes often in printed text get embedded in kind of larger biographical narratives. So you know, you know a little bit about the Countess of Devonshire before you get to her buttered turnips. <laughs> I was wondering was thinking about the relationship by the audience in a novel and the audience for a cookery book in other words when you're writing a cookery book you're really imagining a specific person in a specific place doing a specific thing I mean Jamie Oliver imagines I think whoever writes Jamie the voice of the collective voice that is Jamie Oliver um imagines lots of little Jamie Olivers, I think, consuming it, don't they? Or, this is me, yes, yes. Or, or, or Nigella's image of her readers is, is, is lots of little Nigellas. Whereas in novels, I don't think that's quite the case. When, when the novel first emerged in the 18th century, the, the image of the, the reader was always middle-class female readers. I wonder if that's the case so much now, though, that I think that the, the cookbook is, or certain cookbooks are so successful. I wonder if there is a particular kind of market it does feel yeah that's true because i suppose you could imagine with that mrs beaton's book that there's clearly very clearly a housewife mm -hmm. with a certain sort of income in a specific sort of home mm -hmm. cooking for a particular sort of family mm -hmm. so it's very clearly imagined or or described mm -hmm. and maybe you're right maybe it's less directive in the way that i think a novel and a cookbook hit the imagination in slightly different ways i think that's what i was trying to to wonder uh, earlier that that there is another stage to reading with a cookbook, which is that you go to the shops and, in, as you said, enjoy buying and gathering those those uh, ingredients and then returning home and trying to make 
your meal look vaguely like the picture that's probably beautifully arranged on mm. on, on the page and that but the, but with a novel it goes somewhere else doesn't it you mm. sort of you it, it sort of twirls around your head it's slightly invisible yeah um, well i suppose one 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 definition of literature is that it's it's writing that doesn't have a pragmatic practical aim in mind that it's there in a kind of autonomous way just just for its own aesthetic pleasure and and, and cookery books when they imagine a feast at the end of it are always imagining an outcome like that but maybe if cookery books are now read without that outcome in mind that's an interesting moment when the cookery book is becoming a bit more like literature it's becoming a kind of imaginary imaginative form in the way you described well there's a, there is that slight sense and with the television element of it now with those big those major writers whether it's Nigella or, or Jamie Oliver there is that slightly sort of pornographic element that we watch brilliant meals being made in this sort of extraordinary way that you can't possibly replicate at home. And in fact, it's slightly disappointing to try and recreate the Jamie Oliver thing where your friends come around and on their mopeds and you hand them this kind of slightly limp bit of broccoli um, and wonder <laughs> what, what went wrong. And there is that gap between word and... I suppose it's very you could deconstruct it in a sort of very interesting, fascinating way that what, what is the gap between the, the language and the limp bit of broccoli. Oh, and, that, that, and, that, and that's presumably why Come Dine With Me is, is the, the best TV programme for the last 20 years, because it exploits precisely that, 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 that funny cultural moment we've got when we are all watching these amazing TV programmes or reading these cookery books, but we're basically inept in the kitchen. So when we have people around for dinner, we, we know that we should pile our food up in a vertical tower. Or that we should um, have flames that explode as we're frying something. I think I hate cookery books actually for that reason. That, <laughs> that when I've made my my bad broccoli soup or whatever it is, you you look at the text and you look at the picture and then you look at what you've created and feel a bit depressed and sort of blame the words somehow. That if Delia had actually just said, "Oh, you know, fricassee that in a you know with a sort of in a different way," I would have thought. And sometimes I have to run actually to look up what the word is because I know that it's very important. So I'll say, "Well, I'll mash it," you know. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure what flambe means. Yeah, and even even the writers who are very rela- apparently relaxed in their recipes, like Nigel Slater, is always talking, isn't he, about a, a rough handful of, of bulgur wheat. And you, you know, how much is a rough handful? But I think you know, it depends. I mean, those writers they rely upon their readers having a certain sort of, uh, I suppose, cultural capital mm. to know, to be in the know. Mm. And actually, you know, you try and replicate a River Cafe or a Nigel Slater recipe with chonky ingredients from Asda and it's just going to taste like crap because, you know, you cannot make the perfect, most simple tomato sauce that hasn't even been cooked. It's just so, oh, you know, with like olive oil. But unless you've got the best olive oil in the world and the best tomatoes. And so there's a sort of disjuncture between probably most people actual lives as they hef home from Asda with the ingredients and what they're going to be able to produce, I think. And, he, and there's no acknowledgement of that. And Hugh Fairley Whittingstall is, is the supreme example of that. He talks a lot about you know, showing people how they can practically easily make these great recipes, but you have to have a fleet of you know, Bavarian boars and a working wine press. You do, but can I, I, in defence of these uh, cookery sure. writers slightly, or, or in, in of, this, of this moment, I suppose, is that what I think is... Um, interesting or exciting and possibly new is the way in which pleasure and taste are talked about very legitimately now, that it's perfectly okay to want to feel pleasure of food. And that seems to me very absent from the cookery books that you get pre sort of the 60s, that it's not about pleasure and enjoyment. It's about um, it was ordering and sorting out and getting it on the table and, and being clever and sensible and 
and maybe about display and uh, and all the set of things. But it's, there's never the mention of this really tastes very nice and you might get some enjoyment from it. But that adds its own particular kind of pressure, doesn't it, when we cook now? Because if we if we produce something that doesn't delight and, and give tremendous pleasure, then we feel we, as with James's limp broccoli, fallen, <laughs> fallen short. And that's a broader question, isn't it, about Britain over the last, I suppose, half century, that espresso apparently hasn't been sort of commonly available until until relatively recently. And it's it's amazing to think actually it hasn't been that long since we've really enjoyed food. And you read something like Dickens, actually the food is rather sort of wonderful sounding, but something quite weird happened to British cooking. And I think it's very interesting that, you know, we are learning to taste things. And as you say, I think that does create all new avenues of disappointment when you don't create it because you 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 want that and I think, but I think that's an extraordinary thing and it does feel a slightly un-English desire yeah. uh, for and I think maybe we're not quite used to it yet which is why we slightly mm-hmm. mock Jamie Oliver and Nigella for mm-hmm. rubbing her hands through her, her dough and her, her, I'm sure very sprightly broccoli yeah <laughs> I, I mean she's definitely she is cooking for herself isn't you know that's the thing in a way mm. you know she's I think she says in the in her uh, introduction to how to eat which in itself is interesting, this kind of idea that you have to be taught how to eat, that most basic of things that's completely instinctual. I mean, you you know, you, everyone eats, but actually eating is about all these much more complicated things. So she has to teach you through a book that's about 900 pages long how to do it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she sort of says something like, I have only one thing to confess, I am greedy. And the whole book is really a celebration of her greed and her mm-hmm. sort of legitimising her own pleasure of eating. Uh, and that that's okay to be an individual person just cooking for themselves. Because she did that, I think the, the two fat ladies did that, and Keith Floyd did that. They, they actually yeah. looked like they were having fun. fun. Yeah. Whereas I think Delia, much as I admire her, and particularly her stewardship of Norwich City, um, <laughs> does was always reminded me of that sort of slightly angry yes. teacher at school telling you, now this is how you boil an egg. And even more Gary Rhodes, who had this kind of uh, sort of level of precision that I found really unsettling. Though I have got from one of his sort of easy-to-use cookbooks, which my, I think my mother lobbed at me, and um, there's this very nice chicken thing in yogurt, which is extraordinary and very, very easy. And, um, but it takes me hours to get my hair to do that, <laughs> which is quite intimidating. <laughs> but I do like that, and I do quite... Actually, I quite like those books. They're, they're sort of interesting. There's some knock-off easy-to-do book of the main book, which firstly is quite... Actually, it's a practical thing. They're quite difficult cookbooks in the kitchen, um, just as a physical object, because I have this little sort of plastic book holder to avoid the enormous spattering of my overboiled broccoli. But they're actually quite unwieldy things, I think, cookbooks. And I rather like these sort of tiny little... Um, versions that you get the sort of uh, greatest hits of Gary Rhodes, which mm. you can sort of m- mess about with. But then that's quite nice as well when you remember that you made that dish because it's spattered with yeah. tomato sauce and things. I obviously have a different relationship with cookbooks because I'd think of those as the kind of Brodie's notes or yeah. abridged versions, I'm, and I just don't. I know. I don't really approve of them. I don't. Five minutes before I got to. <laughs> <laughs> before the exam starts. And I haven't read War and Peace. Did you read in The Guardian last week, they had, in time for the university students, undergraduates going back to university, they had a cookbook section, which was really very weird because it was all about um, easiness and knock this up you know, quickly and so on. But it was recipes by Gordon Ramsay and um, Nigel Slater. And other, so it was this curious collision of kind of expertise and sophistication. But that is a, such a moment of now because, you know, student cookery books 
for up until about 1995 were about how to 700 times ways time. of doing mints. Yes. Yeah, how to make a tin of baked beans stretch. Yeah. I mean, that was really... But this is sort of students in a different form yeah, to it, what I know of a student. You it'll know. be fascinating to see how that supplement plays out in you know the next 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 10 weeks at Bangor University or wherever it is and whether people are really making pork belly. I just can't believe they are. I'm sure they're having macaroni cheese with ketchup. There was a great TV show, actually. I think it was called Get Stuffed, which used to be on about 3 o'clock in the morning. So you'd, you'd get in when you were a student. And it was aimed at students. And it was cook with the can of... Uh, Carlsberg Special Brew and Mars Bar that you had and you'll make an exciting new soup. That's my one idea for a website that I have to make millions was to, you, you go to this website and you type in, you look at your fridge and that kind of poultry contents of your fridge and you type in you know, instant coffee, um, chicken drumstick, little plastic egg that makes the smell disappear in the fridge and then, then you press return and it gives you back a recipe which you can make out of these contents and I thought that would be a fantastic idea. <laughs> One way of thinking about the relationship between food and literature, I suppose, is to, is to think about the overlap between a language of eating and, and chewing and swallowing and digesting and then how people talk about reading and books. Because it seems to me often people talk about consuming fiction or consuming novels or chewing over a bit of text. Or the idea of taste, I suppose, is the most interesting example that you have a refined um, sense of Petrarch's sonnets, but you also have ex- excellent taste when, you, when you're confronted with a cheese board. And I just wonder what that suggests. I mean, is it about being transformative? I mean, one is physically transformative, um, but it's also socially, culturally. You, you sort of eat yourself into culture, I suppose. I guess I would be interested to hear more about the, uh, the sort of ideas that reading trashy novels in the 18th century the kind of polluting ideas around yeah. that yeah. so what I mean what was the anxiety what was the fear of what would happen if you read a novel what, well I think I think the fear was often that it would kind of unleash and unbutton a kind of a world of kind of hedonism and pleasure and appetite which is another word that that kind of moves between the two that should normally be policed and controlled and the novel particularly was a, was a vulgar form which which women dangerously read and even more dangerously wrote, I think. And probably, I wonder if that's a slight sort of uh, connection with, again, with co- cooking, mm-hmm. um, the, the dangers of Jane Austen, um, writing, you know, uh, not this elevated poetic language, but language we could all understand, scenes from life that we, could, we all lived, mm-hmm. rather than going to war and uh, trying to uh, invade Troy or something. <laughs> I suppose there's another, which is that cooking is to to writing as eating is to to reading, and then maybe yeah. you sit around and discuss how what we all felt. I mean, I don't know if there are now cookery sort of clubs in the way there are reading groups, and um, but there's a, there's an act of creation and an act of reception in yeah. some way. Yeah, it reminds me of that that art, that artist Jonathan Latham, who died a few years ago, but in the '60s was this British artist, and he. Was famous in 1967 for eating a copy of um, Clement Greenberg's Art and Culture, and um, he, and I think it played around this overlap between the language of reading and the language of food because that book Art and Culture was very critical of British taste in art and saying it was very parochial and unadventurous and 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 Latham objected to that and so decided to kind of literalise that taste. Um, metaphor and he with his students he taught at St Martin's I think he t- they tore all the pages out and then chewed them and then spat them out and mixed them with a load of yeast and it rose and then when he got a letter of complaint from his library he sent a file of this stuff back to them 
um, in, in place of the book. And I think it was an inter- and it was an, obviously an interesting moment. He was interested in kind of making literal these things, which are normally metaphorical. I mean, we all talk about chewing over a book or digesting a great novel, but if you actually do that, then it's obviously the most transgressive thing. And we do read food as well, don't we? I mean, if you walk past Fortnum Mason's windows and things like that, you go past and you don't eat it, it's there behind the glass. And there's always that moment in MasterChef where they kind of wander around having a, a look. Yeah, and the whole language of appreciation has developed, hasn't it? Which is, which is quite... Was that moment where sauce became coolie, which I never understood? <laughs> Lloyd Grossman. Yeah, what are the particular terms? Well, I think it's more in the tone, that there has to be a tone of unself-conscious enthusiasm. Mm. So you'd have sort of John Tarot, you know, oh, this is really gutsy, you know, this is really... As though, like, the more energy and... Uh, it's this idea about sort of passion and food. So, again, it's got this sort of bodily... Uh, invokes the body, i.e. the body of the individual who's cooked, has to kind of be literally sort of transferred into the food. So, you know, the more passionate you are, um, it's like, you know, you cook with love, all of those sorts of things. So it's something about, it's, it's less about the individual words than it seems to me about the kind of mode in which you cook, which in some way legitimises the food that you produce. But or... is, there, is there a sort of gender anxiety there as well, men talking about food? Um, is potentially problematic, and you have to talk about it in a certain way, and a sort of gutsy. And th- I love that this is the striking thing when Jamie first emerged that he he had a whole whole, whole other way of talking about food, which was you know dropping his consonants and mucka pucka tucker or whatever those phrases were he used. So it seems that there's 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 an underlying fear there that we might be seen as a bitter feat. You know, you can map that very closely into. You know, the, the female chefs and cookery writers. Well, the, the cookery writers who are famous are by and large not chefs. They are domestic cooks mm-hmm. who are known for being great domestic home cooks. Mm. The the cookery writers who are men who are really well known are by and large, with probably Nigel Slater as the exception, they come from restaurant backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of division between the restaurant as a public place, a place which has very clear hierarchies where you're a professional, where you're trained, it legitimises the 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 cooking or producing of food which is very gendered Mm -hmm. so the domestic space still remains you know female loving um uh, center of the home all of those things and that's a place that the woman can inhabit as a kind of chef i think i mean i think and that's why you know it's okay for gordon ramsay to be effing and blinding and being mr macho Mm -hmm. and that's in a way for me that's you know for him that's necessary in order that nobody you know ever you know, talks about him being a fell footballer again because he's so tough and and big and macho. James, you're you're holding a lovingly thumbed. Um, I was just thinking about the language of um, enthusiasm, and and also um, completely by accident tying it up with ideas of reading and writing, and also pleasure. This is all just coming together, um, and it's a bit of Keats. And it's interesting because he's to- he's talking about having to get a job um, rather than loafing about. Massively in debt, um, and, and trying to be a poet. If I can find any place tolerably comfortable, I will settle myself and fag till I can afford to buy pleasure, which, if I never can afford, I must go without. Talking of pleasure, this moment I was writing with one hand, and with the other holding to my mouth a nectarine. Good God, how fine! It went down soft, pulpy, slushy, oozy, all its delicious embonpoint melted down my throat like a large, beatified strawberry. I shall certainly breed. And what I think is extraordinary about that, is, other than the kind of gushing, sort of mushy, is that he compares eating a nectarine to eating a strawberry, yes, yes. which I think is an ex- I mean, a large beatified strawberry. Um, but 
it, it made me think of the language of, of of food and drink and metaphor that when you drink a glass of wine and being asked to, you know, this is like iron filings or um, it's like Wednesday morning or whatever that you're comparing it to. I rather like it if you say this nectarine is a bit like a strawberry. So much of the text I was looking at did seem to have this notion of taste with a moment of reading or writing. Leopold Bloom is the same. He's eating and then goes off to read something and then at the end of the chapter sits on the lavatory reading something else. And so you get this this chain of of food, taste, reading, and the whole time sort of Joyce sitting, tapping him on the shoulder, um, reminding him that he's in a book. What does food in literature stand for? Because it often seems to me that great scenes of eating or feasting, whether it's famous scene of in Field, Henry Fielding's Tom Jones or in Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, these great set-piece feastings. Food is often a metaphor, a symbol of, of something else, something beyond itself, usually lust or sex or desire. Well, the interesting thing I think about that, also because it's in a letter, is it gives you that sense of, of spontaneity and so that moment of... Uh, off extemporary writing, but also that eating is has that kind of short-lived pleasure, but somehow the letter ties it down uh, and gives it a certain kind of kind of life, and that's the problem with, but I suppose, between literature and and eating. One of the disjunctions is is that you eat and and it has a very particular kind of beginning, middle, and and an end. And that's always a sort of tiny tragedy of going out for a wonderful meal, isn't yeah. it? Well, that's how I think of it. Maybe maybe you're different, but it it's it passes and it's, you know, you know, four pounds ninety five well spent, perhaps. But you know, it it, it it passes and it's gone. But why is that different to when you're reading a fabulous novel and you're nearing the end, just like when you're nearing the end? I think probably eating is perhaps more like the going to the theatre that you you may cook that meal a hundred times, but it will always be very slightly different. Going to theatre, you'll see, you may see Henry the Fourth Part Two a million times, but each and you can see it with exactly the same cast, but it will always be slightly different. I think reading a book, I suppose you bring something slightly different to it, but the book itself is always there as an, as an artifact in the way that a painting is always going to be the same. I suppose it's very romantic in that way, eating, isn't it? That it's 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 fleetingness is part of its great joy that you'd love to eat that meal again um but you never quite could yeah and maybe maybe there's another connection between recipes and cooking and literature in that recipes give you a quite perhaps familiar list of ingredients things you've already confronted but by flinging them together in a particular combination something new is produced and each time you do it it's different and that seems to me a little bit like the process of I don't know, writing a poem or writing a short story and writing a novel, and you gather these experiences and literary sources and anecdotes, which might independently be quite familiar and something news news produced. When you read really extraordinary writing, you look at these words and you think, how is it that those words are all really simple? I know all those words, and yet how did this person put those together in such a way mm. that they've expressed something in a way that's made me feel different or new, and that's the same with cooking. Yeah, that's particularly striking with writers whose prose is seemingly very stripped down and unadorned. I went to see Stephen Fry in the Albert Hall on Tuesday, um, so he's on my mind. But there's a very funny sketch when he talks about language, and he talks about how you can, exactly the point you just made, really, you take these very, very familiar words, which we all, all use, but and put them together in a sentence which isn't very long, just as a recipe isn't very long, but that sentence is unique and has never been created before. And he gives a, an example of this. He says, hold the newsreader's nose squarely. 
waiter, or friendly milk will countermand my trousers. And as he says, these are all words that we're, perhaps with the exception of countermand, quite used to using, but they've never been put together in that combination, although ironically now that has become a, something of a quotation for um, followers of Stephen Fry, I think. It's that relationship between the familiar and the few and something new and miraculous being made. There's a lovely bit at the beginning of Goblin Market, the Christina Rossetti poem, which I kept thinking how sort of descriptive and wonderful and sort of evocative it was. And actually, it's just a list of, of berries. But it's also justification of why poetry is great, because it sounds sort of wonderful. So it just starts. Morning and evening, maids heard the goblins cry. Come buy our orchard fruits. Come buy, come buy. Apples and quinces, lemons and oranges, plump unpecked cherries, melons and raspberries, bloom down cheeked peaches, swart headed mulberries, wild freeborn cranberries, crab apples, dewberries, pineapples, blackberries, apricots, strawberries, all ripe together in summer weather. And it sort of makes you want to go and eat some fruits, but it's just a list of, it's a shopping list, mm-hmm. but with this kind of extraordinary rhythmic thing. And I think it is, there is this something wonderful about. Uh, the way that food and literature does make you want the best kind of writing about it makes you want to meet it to go and eat. Yeah, um, absolutely. And also the overlap between the list as a, as a very pragmatic form that's just scribbled on the back of a receipt. Which, but it's also the list is quite close to poems and, and quite uh, quite close to the stanza and the, and the poem as a form. Um, one could read out a shopping list and see a modernist poem, I think. Maybe we could say a little bit about politics and, and the politics of food, because there does seem to be now, you know, the, this, this relatively new emphasis on organic food. And, and we're all quite conscious of how far our um, kohlrabi has been flown um, to arrive in our veg box. Food's always been political and that it's that it's just that we feel it's particularly political because we're in this moment. And so if, I mean, I've, I've got here this extract from an empire cookery book from 1927, which I know isn't hugely old, but we can go back further. But anyway, this empire cookery book, 1927, is, um, uh, is, is, asking the housewife to only buy goods which were produced via the empire in order to <laughs> in order to you know for instance it says is it not better that the money we spend on food should go to help our kinsmen overseas who are planting and growing food for us rather than to foreigners who have no interest in the british empire not only are british goods better and cleaner than foreign goods but they are generally cheaper so you know, you can historicise this notion of, you know, Britishness buying local. I mean, obviously, the, this is an empire, mm. but the nation is kind of written into the, the space of the home in this mm. um, in very clear ways. And similarly, I think that um, the way in which the domestic space for the 19th century for middle class and Mrs Beaton's book about how to manage that kitchen and how to be domestically in control is also about a sort of politics about the public and the private and what you present. That sounds like an earlier version of the kind of buy British um, mantra that we live by today, doesn't it? And inverting yeah. that, I mean, it's an interesting thing that when you look at immigration to Britain over the last two centuries, I guess, the first thing often that, that, that whether it was Italian immigration in the 19th century or um, uh, the Windrush or the um, Asian immigration here from from China, that one of the ways that those cultures express themselves here when they're probably facing all sorts of daunting obstacles is by setting up restaurants. And that's, that's the way that they become uh, integrated and that we 
communicate through via food mm. and and via language. But I do um, think what's interesting about what you said is, and in relation to food and also literature, is the idea of guilt. So morality and guilt uh, play very strongly into both. So you know whether you feel guilty uh, reading a Dan Brown book or worse and feeling guilty about buying certain sorts of foods or particularly for cooking them for children I think that goes back to the idea of them both being potentially polluting Mm -hmm. um, and therefore you're sort of at risk. It's also a kind of expression as well it it reminds me slightly of the sort of arguments I have with with people about the environment that it's about personal freedoms as opposed to a sort of social responsibility so you sort of say on one hand sod it I really want to eat this veal in um, in uh, foie gras sauce, but actually, what what is my social responsibility here? Do I have does my does my desire for pleasure? Um, and I want to eat this, by the way, on a short haul flight down the end of my road. I mean, the stereotype of, of English British cuisine is that it's catastrophically bad, isn't it? And if you talk to people from other countries, that's the stereotype: bad teeth and bad teeth and bad. Bad cuisine. Is that is that shifting, do you think? Is there a sense of British food as something which is kind of entering the 14th century? If you're someone who's very into uh, expensive, fantastic restaurants, yeah. London in particular, but, but Britain in general is regarded as somewhere where you can eat extremely well and there are some of the world's best chefs and restaurants here. Mm-hmm. But the disjuncture is that if you're not spending that sort of money, it's quite hard to find just ordinary good food that everybody's eating. Mm-hmm. And that's the difference between England, Britain, it seems to me, and a number of other countries. I kind of, I'd like to read the entirety of um, Beckett's Dante and the Lobster, which is an extraordinary, <laughs> has an extraordinary eight-page description of making a cheese sandwich. Food and Beckett, I mean, that's a whole, that's a life's work, isn't it? Because I mean, I'm going to see Crap's Last Tape in a couple of weeks, and the the, 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 the use of the banana in that, and as a sort of mechanism for nostalgia, but also it sort of exposes just how weird and strange and absurd it is to eat something, just the process of peeling and placing it in your mouth and digesting. He really... Going into your body. Yeah. I mean, it's strange. This is William Carlos Williams. It's poem. This is just to say. This is just to say. I have eaten the plums that were in the ice box and which you were probably saving for breakfast. Forgive me. They were delicious. So sweet and so cold. So I think we better draw to a close there. We're off to make pippin pie together. I'd like to thank Polly Russell and, as ever, my pod pal James Kidd. And we will see you on a downloadable device imminently.